Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. This is Dee, and welcome to episode 69 of the Benzo Free Podcast. How are you doing? <laughs> I hope you're doing better than me right now. <laughs> i got to tell you what happened. Um, this is a doubleheader episode, so I'm recording two episodes at once, which always takes me extra work. And um, I already had, the, um, of course, the interview recorded for both of them, but today I'm recording the introduction, Benzo Story, and closing with a moment of peace for each one takes a while. And I did that, recorded for both episodes 69 and 70, and pulled it up into my audio software and found out that my little digital audio recorder was set on the wrong microphone. <laughs> it was set to record the internal microphone instead of my podcast microphone, this one here, that is um, hooked up to it, which means it recorded very poor quality of audio and it recorded every little thump I made on this table over here um, on the recording, so it was not usable. And um, as much as I like talking to all of you, <laughs> re-recording these both episodes isn't something I was looking forward to. But, you know, it's, it's room to do changes. I, I think the thing that frustrates me the most is I really liked the flow of those two, what I did. And I'm now I know I'm not gonna re-record it the way it was before because I am ad-libbing most both of my introductions due to our interview and everything else. I'm not scripting this. And I'm doing a little more ad-lib now that we're doing video too, because I think it looks odd for me to be recording from my, you know, reading from my sheet the whole time. But I just wanted to let you know that, you know, I'll I'll get into the groove here pretty soon, I promise. But just a little frustrated that that happened. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I forget on this podcast, I think lately um, I've been pretty positive and in a good mood, and I have been. My life is going pretty well. I'm excited about what we're doing here. Um, I'm getting a second energy with it, which is great. Not doing as much of the delivery driving lately because it's been a little crazy lately with this and I've been trying to get a lot out lately but I probably will do some driving end of this week once these come out um, and when I say these it's because there were two parts to this episode in case you didn't see already so this is the conversation with Dr. Robert Volick and this will come out in two parts as I often do it's what I call a double header and that means that um, they will be released on the same day or pretty close to it the second one might come out <laughs> tomorrow because or a day later just because um, I'm behind now, so I'm going to try to do the best I can. But I just want at least to get the first one out today. Other one would be out shortly. But, um, and where was I? There comes the brain fog again. <laughs> but, um, oh, what I was trying to say is that I feel, sometimes I try to find a balance between when I'm talking with you, because I can sometimes think I'm too positive, like, meaning I, I can't relate or I'm not connected to you or I'm more detached because I know a lot of you aren't that positive right now that you're suffering and you're dealing with a lot. So I want to make sure that I'm not seeming disconnected from you. But I also don't want to be too down and also always emotional because we, we need things to lighten us up and we need success. I mean, some of you look to me as being, hey, this is what's coming and Last thing I want to do is show you that my life's miserable, which it's not. But I, I do want to make sure that I come across just as who I am. And that's the thing I love about this is I think in a world of such superficiality, which we do that because we have all these ways of communicating now, like YouTube, like social media, 
and we can put our other self out there, you know, that self that we want everybody to think we are. And I don't want to do that, and I haven't been doing that with the podcast. But also, this stuff is raw, this benzo withdrawal and anxiety. It's real and it's raw, and I do hear from, from many of you that you enjoy me being me and the real me. And I'm trying to be that consistently, and I have from the start. When I first started the podcast, very first episode, I think I said, I promise to be honest, objective, and something else. I don't remember everything, but honest and objective were two that I that I promised to be, and I, I felt I've stayed true to that. So, so when I have um, good days, I share them with you. When I have bad days, I share them with you. I'm just going to be who I am, and I'm going to share you my flaws and my screw-ups, my warts and all. I say that, I said that several times in the podcast, but this is me, warts and all. And I think that's what works. And so I keep doing that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, even though I've been feeling better lately and doing better, I don't want you to think I'm detached because I totally feel the connection with each of you, especially those of you who are in acute withdrawal and going through significant suffering and difficulties in your lives. You write to me, you tell me about it, and those emails and comments still make the same effect, the same difference, still affect me as much as they always did. And I still struggle too. I still have down days. I just have more up days than down, and that's a real good thing. As I ramble on, what I'm trying to say is that I don't know how else to do this, but then just to be me, to talk about my experiences, to talk about my flaws, talk about your experiences and share your struggles. Because I think if anything in this world that's missing right now, it's people being real. And I don't mean just, you know, tolerating people of different faiths and beliefs and genders and sexual preferences and color. I mean, all that, absolutely. But I mean not being afraid to show all of you the other side, the dark side, the side you're not proud of, the mistakes, the screw-ups. I just don't worry about that that much. And so for me, it's just kind of natural to come on and say, hey, you know, this is me, and I screw up, and I have problems, and I had to re-record the entire podcast because I forgot to push one switch. But I think it connects. And um, as I ramble on, which I do, it's just who I am. I like to talk, as you can tell. But most of all, I like communicating with you. And so re-recording this isn't that bad because it's nice to be able to do that. Today's format will include our introduction, which is me rambling on right now, which you just heard, the Benzo story, our feature, and our moment of peace. Don't forget that since this is a podcast, I'm reading a little more from script than I do in some of our videos. It's just the style I do it here because I have things written down. So I'll be looking down part of the time. It's just what I do. Our, our feature today is our conversation with Dr. Robert Valick. Uh, he's a pharmacologist here in Colorado in the state I live in. But he's worked on several different consortiums and coalitions to help prevent drug abuse. He's abuse, <laughs> abuse, abuse, and he works with um, benzodiazepines. And we have a wonderful conversation. I split it into two podcast episodes, as I often do, with a double header. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. So please stick around for that one. Um, let's cover the administrative stuff real quick. Um, before we move on, don't forget I need your help. Always do. Need feedback of any kind. Um, you can provide feedback in four ways. One, YouTube channel. You comment on that. That's probably the best because the more comments along with the more subscriptions and likes and stuff, the more attention it gets and the more people find us. On our podcast posts, you can comment there too. Um, send, a, send a comment through benzofree.org slash feedback, our feedback form, or on one of our podcast carriers so others can find us. Um, while you're at the website, please subscribe to our um, email list, which is at benzofree.org slash subscribe slash subscribe. <laughs> I'll put it on here on, on, the, on the link on the thing. For those of you who are watching video, I'll put it here on the screen. 
sorry for the page click if you heard that that's me turning pages if you're just on audio only and of course if you want to help out what we do here you can donate at benzofrito.org donate every little bit helps we are totally based off donations right now so that is what helps keep us going so thank you for that and the benzo free podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice i think you've heard that before if you watched any of these and that will close that out. So, of course, if you're listening to this on one of our audio-only carriers, like our podcast carriers out there, just remember that even though we're recording this in video, you're not missing much. This is still geared towards podcast because it is a podcast. I'm just recording some video of me talking and looking down at these sheets of paper because I also want to be able to release it on YouTube to hopefully have more people pay attention and see it. So that would be great. And I think that closes out our intro about time. Let's move on to our benzo story. All right, now for our benzo story. I just took a short bathroom break and came back and realized one of my lights wasn't on. So I just turned that on. So if you're watching the video and you see that it look a little different, um, that's because I just um, turned on one of the lights that I forgot to turn on. This is what happens when you're trying to put out two podcasts in one day and you have to re-record both. Uh, but we're getting there. You got to laugh at this stuff, don't you? Um, got a great story today. This is an audio story, and I don't get many of those, but love it when I do. I love all the stories that come in. I really do. But the audio stories are really special because we get to hear the story in your voice. And um, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to share that and to hear that and hear you sharing your other story. Please, if you'd like to submit your story, I'd love to hear it. If you'd like to submit an audio story, we'd love to hear that. It's real simple. You can just record it on your phone you can record it on recording equipment if you have it and send a file into me it doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to be really high quality um, as you can see from today's interview it's not the best quality because it's a zoom call so we'll share it um, it's mostly important to be you and to be raw and be who you are just like i'm doing here just be yourself tell me your struggles and what's going on and you can keep sending them in to me written to i love sharing those in the podcast also Anyway, this one's from Ray um, in the San Francisco area, California. And Ray sent this one back to me in June of this year, but because of the hiatus and everything happening, I was backlogged a little bit and getting to some of the stories. Um, the quali quality of Ray's recording is exceptional, which is really nice. Um, Ray is an actor, director, and a podcaster, and it shows. <laughs> it shows in his recording and in his um, vocal presentation and his talent, so... Thank you, Ray. Really nice recording, and it's great to have that one. Um, I'll put a link to his podcast in our show notes, so you can go check that out if you'd like to. But I just want to thank Ray for sharing his story here, and um, and I don't think I have more to say before we start. Without further ado, here's Ray. Hi, Dee. My name is Ray, and I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. I started taking Clonopin somewhere between 15 and 18 years ago. I'm not sure when, because at the time I thought of it uh, as such a non-event. What I do remember is that my psychiatrist prescribed the clonopin to me, and if memory serves me right, he said something to the effect, I just think it's a good idea, it's very mild, and it will help you, trust me. <laughs> and at the time, I knew nothing about benzos, so I took it as instructed. He told me, keep taking it month after month, year after year. After a couple of years, the one milligram that he prescribed me became one and a half milligrams as I reached tolerance, although I didn't know what tolerance was at the time. So I just kept taking it. When I began my taper about four years ago, I initially tapered off of half a milligram, and that was easy for me for some reason. It only did take a few weeks. Then I had to stop because I had a head injury that I incurred in a martial arts session, and then I had a couple more head injuries, and I had to wait about a year and a half. <laughs> I finally started over with the final milligram, and that's when my life became a series of various stages of hell as it has for many of us, uh, but I was determined not to let it get me down, and I tried to continue my life as an actor and a director. I struggled through many rehearsals and performances, often having to uh, meditate and do yoga, breathing for two to three hours each day, 
just to help me make it through the sessions without totally losing it. Uh, my doctor at the time was a psychiatrist who really knew nothing about getting people off of benzos. The first taper schedule she gave me was a typical six-week thing, and that nearly drove me out of my mind. So I had to stop and reinstate and wait a couple months and then start again. But then I was going so slowly, it was going to take me about six years to finish, and that was not going to be okay. So I finally found another doctor after two years of tapering who specialized in addiction and dependence, and I'm so glad for her. He switched me over to Valium, as described in the Ashton Manual, and six months later, I am now off of benzos completely. Uh, my last dose was yesterday. And I am kind of in shock. I uh, didn't know how I would feel when I got to this day. I was never even sure I would get to this day. And I am done. Thank you, Dee, for all you have done and are doing for the Benzo community. I, for one, appreciate it a lot. And I'm sure there are many, many people out there who do as well. Thanks so much. Take care. Oh, thanks, Ray. Thanks for sharing your story. Klonopin. That's a fun one, isn't it? <laughs> I'm glad you found a doctor to switch over to Valium, um, substitution taper. I kind of thought that might have been good for me. I didn't do it. I think I didn't want to add another drug. I was freaked out about already having this drug in my system um, of clonazepam, and I didn't want to add another one. But I totally, I totally get the need to substitution. I wonder if that would have been better for me, too, because... Not only are these drugs high-potency, Xanax, um, Clonopin, um, I think Halcyon is the other one, are all 20, at 20, 20 to 1 um, to Valium. And I think, um, uh, see, my numbers aren't in my head that fresh. Um, I think Ativan's like 10 to 1. But they're high-potency compared to Valium. And um, that also means it's hard to cut down your dosage. That's why so many people do liquid titration or micro-tapering, because it's hard to get those pills to come down. I didn't do that. <laughs> I just cut down and finally got to a quarter milligram and jumped from there. And that's also probably why my acute was so strong. Might have been one of the factors. But thank you, Ray. Thanks so much for sharing and for recording your your your, um, your story and just be willing to share it on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And you take care and please um, touch base and let me know how you're doing. I'm curious how things are going right now. And that brings us to our feature. Let's move on to the feature because this is an exciting one and I don't want to take too much long with the prep because we have a long feature to cover. Um, our feature today is a conversation with Dr. Robert Valick. He's a pharmacologist. Um, in case you didn't know, because I didn't know completely, I knew it had something to do with pharmacy and medicine. I wasn't sure. Looked it up and it's a branch of medicine concerned with the uses, effects, and modes of actions of drugs. That's the guy we should be talking to because this is this is the person who studies drugs and their effects on the body. That's what he does. Um, and he's had work with opioids for a long time, and now he's working with benzodiazepines too. A lot of experience leading up some consortiums and coalitions and professor at college. We'll get into that here in just a second, but great background and great information. The conversation flowed wonderfully. I really enjoyed it. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Valak, our guest today. Robert Valick is a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharma Pharmacy. I'm sorry, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> and since I'm just running this straight, I'm going to take my flubs and keep going. Robert J. Valick is a professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy, Epidemiology, and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Schools of Pharmacy, Public Health, and Medicine at the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. Dr. Valak is director of the Center for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention at the University of Colorado, which houses the state's opioid task force, the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. The consortium has evolved over the past seven years to include 10 work groups with over 750 members across the state, focusing on key areas relating to education, prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. The consortium has gained recognition as a model for the development of collaborative, coordinated responses to the opioid overdose epidemic in the United States. 
This conversation was recorded remotely via Zoom with Dr. Valik, so the video and audio quality isn't great. Um, this is the first one I've recorded in both video and audio for the podcast, and I'm working on new software and different ideas, so I will continually try to improve the quality. But it's still totally, you know, what's the word? Not legible, but the, the auditory version of it. <laughs> Hearable, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody will tell me. Um, and if you're listening to the uh, podcast audio only of this, no worries. There's no slides. There's no presentation. There's no graphs here. It's just two people talking on screen. So you're not missing anything. Um, just so I let you know. And I don't think I'm going to say more. Let's jump into the interview and let's meet Dr. Robert Valick. All right. Well, today I'm here with Dr. Robert Valick. And, um, you know, rather than me give you more information on him, like we just did on the bio in the intro, I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about himself and his background. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, my name is Rob Ballack. I'm a professor of pharmacy and epidemiology and family medicine at CU at the Anschutz Medical Campus. Uh, my background and training is basically I was a pharmacist for a number of years. Uh, went back to grad school and became a researcher and have since uh, had a career in research and education and most recently advocacy and policy kinds of work uh, okay. relating to mostly um, drugs that affect the central nervous system. Uh, so neuropsychopharmacology is the is the background area that I'm trained in and have my uh, my work in. Okay, so you're working um, in the Department of Clinical Pharmacology, Epidemiology, and Family Practice at at the University of Colorado, correct? Yes, three different departments. My main yeah, my main like you're busy. is <laughs> yeah. in clinical pharmacy, but I've got these joint appointments where we collaborate and and okay. sort of give us a, a joint. Uh, well, I'm not yeah you know, I'm not really in that department, but I'm a considered sort of an affiliate because I collaborate a lot with them and I've done that okay. around campus and I think it just I got you. Hold. Well, that's great. That's great. So what got you into going from being a pharmacist into wanting to get the more advanced degree and go further into pharmacology? Yeah, I was just always interested, even from pharmacy school back in the day, I was, I was fully intending to go to medical school and have a career in medicine okay. um, and thought pharmacy would be really good training for that. But it, it as a, time kind of passed, I was very interested in the pharmacology of things and just made a decision at one point to diverge and not go down the path of clinical medicine, but go over to pharmacology and, and take okay. a deeper dive on, on pharmacology. And I've kind of been at that ever since. Oh, that's exciting. Um, one of the things that actually brought you to my attention and got us starting to work together on some things was the um, Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse and Prevention. Tell me a little bit about that and what your role is in with that and how that got started. Sure. Yeah, the Colorado Consortium uh, for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, or just the consortium, I guess we, we started getting called just by our, <laughs> yeah, our first, name, yeah. uh, first name basis, is basically our statewide task force to address the opioid crisis. Right. Uh, it started as a very small task force of people, actually, by a woman who was a nurse. She started this in 1986. Oh, wow. But it's saying that even back then, there were issues that were starting to pop up with people perhaps becoming tolerant or dependent or addicted, or there's things like doctor shopping or pharmacy shopping or an illicit market for opioids. And those things were showing up 30, 35 years ago. Okay. And she had the foresight to kind of try to get people together and start educating each other, whether that's patients or doctor to doctor or other health professionals and start doing that work. And I was in pharmacy school, my senior year of pharmacy school, the year that woman came by and asked for volunteers to serve on this little task force. And I shot my hand up for, you know, better or worse, that started me down this path was in 1986 um, of trying to see what we could do about it. And after I got my training and came back to see you, I called her up again and sort of volunteered to be in this organization that was still in, still working and volunteered for things and started doing talks and provider education and patient events and health fairs and eventually became a member of the board of that organization. Then the secretary and the vice president and the president of the board. I think anybody's there long enough to keep moving over yeah, one move seat yeah. is the model, right? And so I ended up being the head of that organization. And right about the time I was president of that task force, the governor here at the time, Governor Hickenlooper, was looking at the opioid crisis in 2012 and thinking we ought to probably do something to respond to it. And so we participated as one of many organizations that participated in some statewide strategic planning 
around the opioid crisis and created a statewide plan. And then in May of 2013, the governor asked me if our organization, the consortium, would implement and try to coordinate the activities associated with that strategic plan. And so that's what he basically, you know, it's one of those offers you can't refuse, right? When the governor asks you to do oh, yeah. something. I thought it was kind of unwise that I say no. So I said, sure, I'll try this. Even though I had no training at leading a statewide coalition or I had no carrots to offer people like money. I had no sticks to, to offer people like, if you don't do it, I, I can compel you to do it or, or have some sort of consequence. So I had no carrots, yeah. no sticks, no nothing. And I just said, sure, I'll try. And we've been staying together um, since the strategic planning uh, groups of 2012. We've stayed together over this whole time. And we have um, several different working groups that deal with different things like provider education or public awareness okay. or safe disposal or harm reduction or treatment. Yeah, that actually leads right into my next question. Is um, It's a twofold. One is, what, what do you consider the state of the opioid situation in, um, of course, in Colorado and in the nation? And what are the different work groups? What areas are you working in to help change things? Yeah, no, good question. Uh, and unfortunately, the opioid crisis, we've made a lot of progress in certain areas. We've, we've done a lot to help doctors learn about the risks of opioids and prescribe fewer of them. Now there's about 30% fewer opioids prescribed than there were seven years ago. And that's a good thing. Right. So there's fewer people being exposed to them, probably still too many. But we're, we think we're going in the right direction with that. Uh, public awareness is much higher now. We talked to people five or six years ago and people did not understand there was a crisis at all. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's virtually in the news all the time. We've yeah. done a real a lot of work working with news outlets and public awareness campaigns to kind of raise awareness of it. Um, but still, so we've made progress and we've expanded treatment a lot. Uh, seven years ago in Colorado, there was what we called about an 85% treatment gap, meaning 85% of people who have an opioid use disorder and need treatment can't get it. Oh wow! And so okay. That's really you know a, a huge gap in treatment. If if it was that way for oncology or or hypertension or whatever, people would be marching on the Capitol and you know nobody would get to leave until we figured out how to get yeah. people cancer treatment. But with addictions, it's it's so much more stigmatized uh, that it's very difficult for people to seek treatment to talk about it. Providers don't want to talk about it, and we've been fighting this stigma and trying to educate for a long time and making progress. And now our untreated fraction, this, this treatment gap is down to about 65%, okay. um, which still is a lot, but it's better than most states now. We were average then, and now we're in the top you know, five or 10 states around the country in terms of improving access to treatment, oh, that's great. Uh, which, is a, which is a lot of progress. But we still have a lot of work to do, and we're seeing this thing kind of with COVID now exacerbating people's anxiety and oh. stress and social isolation, and all of those things are the enemy of use disorder prevention. Mm -hmm. um, so those things, and we are seeing people, the early signs of people having more of those, more stress, more consumption of uh, anti-anxiety drugs like benzodiazepines, uh, which I know we'll talk about. Which is the uh, perfect transition there. It really is. <laughs> you you, you planned like, that, didn't you? 34% <laughs> increase in benzodiazepine prescribing in the last six months. And I it's know. really frightening uh, because as you well know, uh, these drugs are not without risk, uh, quite to the contrary, and we have a lot of work to do to try to raise awareness. And our mission, you know, is to continue to keep the focus on opioids. That's not inappropriate, right. but to expand the focus to other kinds of medications that we think are potentially very seriously um, uh, safety concerns for patients, like stimulants and desodates. Okay, so and that's a perfect transition. Um, yeah, one of the things, um, just our little history is one of the, where I where we first connected was I think back in December of last year, 2019, um, there was the the issues meeting on benzodiazepines with um, Jill Hunsucker Ryan and with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And that was the first time I think I had met you directly. Um, Dr. Stephen Wright was part of that and several members from your from your consortium and other places and with um, from Jill's team. Um, I'm sure you were already on, I know you were already on the benzodiazepine bandwagon to some degree, to, working with that before that. Um, Steve had shared me some information before that. Can you maybe talk to me a bit about what got you first, what, what alerted you to the benzodiazepine difficulties, being it similar to opioids, even though we'll talk about the differences, and, and made it a, a consideration for you and the consortium to start to tackle and to start to work with? 
Yeah, really. For me personally, it's been something I've known about since pharmacy school and in the mid 80s. Okay. And watching things. And when I first came out clinically, one of my first clinical jobs was in pharmacology and toxicology consultation for patients in the emergency room or on psychiatric admission status at, at hospitals. When I came out and I had a, a 15% clinical appointment where I would do consults and started to see people, and whether it was opioids, benzos, or stimulants, any of those three classes of drugs were causing problems, and oh, they wow. still are. So yeah. I've had this baseline interest in this, and I really think it's been really just the attention with the dramatic increases in opioid overdose death, which of course is terrible, um, that that has received a lot of attention. And again, that's not inappropriate attention, it's just that it's, it's far from the only thing. And then you see with these overdoses that now more than half of them have a concomitant benzodiazepine on board. So yeah. people are exposed to multiple substances and more often than not now, they're exposed to an opioid, a benzodiazepine and alcohol okay. uh, is by far the most common scenario, uh, yeah. far outnumbering all other scenarios. So they're really an issue. We've known that benzodiazepines okay. are an independent risk factor. We've known that opioids and benzodiazepines going together is a, a huge increase in risk for people of having all kinds of adverse consequences, including right. overdose death. Uh, so we know there are risks, but unfortunately, it's a lot like we saw with opioids. I think there's a lot of parallels that there's a lot of things happening underneath one person at a time. Yeah. And you're not seeing 10,000 people experience something all at once, like an event, a mass tragedy that gets a lot of attention. Right. But you're seeing, unfortunately, this is happening just like opioids did, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, one person at a time, two people, three people, people are starting to talk, but to really make people aware of the full extent of how much problem that this really is, takes some doing. And we're, we, we spent a lot of time trying to do that with opioids to raise awareness in the professional community, the public, and with regulatory and other state agencies and have been somewhat successful. You know, we think we're making progress but we have a long way to go with opioids and even farther. It's like the horse, if this is a horse race, the horse is even closer to the starting gate with, with set with oh, stimulants yeah. and Z drugs and benzos. Which, which is, you know, funny after 50 years, you think we would have made a little more progress by now. You would think these drugs have been around a long time. These yeah, are, they have. And speaking of that, you talked about the two different times. We're going to talk about the FDA warning here for a second. Um, as you well know, the first FDA warning was actually in relation to what you're speaking about, which is the concurrent use of opioids and benzodiazepines. That one came out, I think, in 2016. Um, let's start with that one, and then we'll work into the one that just came out. That one actually affected, I think the numbers at the time were 30% of opioid overdose deaths also showed concurrent use of benzodiazepines. That's right. Can you talk about that a little bit and elaborate as far as the concern of the concurrent use of those medications? Yeah, sure. That it's it's you know we've sort of known this. If you if if you're a really well educated prescriber and or in the pharmacology side of the world, you've known for a long time that adding something else that has potential respiratory depression or sedation, like a benzodiazepine, adding that to an opioid, which on its own has the propensity for sedation and respiratory depression, and if you put them together, this is just you know it, it can be not only additive, it can be a, a multiplicative effect. The degree of this thing is not even necessarily linear. So it's a potential drug interaction that's very concerning. And some people knew about that for quite some time and sort of have known it all along. Most people didn't either didn't think about it or doctors were independently, one would be prescribing an opioid, a different one would be prescribing a benzodiazepine, not knowing that the other might be doing that, but right. then not really thinking so much about, I'm not gonna ask about the benzodiazepine because I'm only writing an opioid, so therefore my job is done and I'm not gonna write a benzodiazepine, so I'm done. But, or vice versa, I'm on the psychiatry side or the behavioral health side, I'm gonna write for primary care and give somebody a, a benzodiazepine, ideally for three or four days in the short term and all of that, yeah. which is a whole other issue. But I'm gonna give somebody a, a benzodiazepine, but I'm not gonna worry about the opioids, I'm not prescribing one. I'm not a pain medicine physician, I'm not treating their pain, I'm merely treating this yeah. episodic you know, condition that I'm supposed to be treating with this medication. And, and isn't, that, yeah, isn't, that somewhat, isn't that somewhat often where pharmacists can come in and help? Certainly can. And unfortunately, okay. I am a pharmacist by training, so I don't like to speak ill of my own people. But uh, unfortunately, we don't do as good a job as we can, you know, in identifying the cases where those two things happen together. Right. Sometimes pharmacists simply don't call or if, look, if doctors have ordered it, they're not legally obligated not to, yeah. to dispense it. 
they have the ability to stop and, and put a stop on it and say, I'm going to call each of these prescribers and say, did you know? But they don't have a legal obligation to do it. Unfortunately, right. not a lot of them always do it. So we, we have this last, you know, this, this supposedly the last stop in this, this train to say, hey, there's a person there. We have yeah. one last place to catch this before yeah, it becomes catch, right. an issue. And we're not really doing as good a job as we could, unfortunately. Understand, understand. Yeah, and so let's get to the second one. So just last Wednesday, of course, as you well know, um, FDA came out with a, a boxed warning on benzodiazepines, this time stating about um, possible serious risk related to dependence, addiction, and abuse. Um, this was kind of the holy grail for many of us. I don't want to go that far, but for many of us in the benzo community, it's the warning we were looking for, although we know it's just the very beginning as far as starting to raise awareness. Will this warning make a difference? And what have been the hurdles in, like you said, you've known about this for years and so have many, what have been the hurdles in educating them more of the medical establishment and educating the patients? Yeah, it's a very challenging thing. You know, it, it really is. I think you're right. This is the, the, this is an appropriate warning probably is a long time coming. You know, if you ask, you know, most people in this community would agree with that. And I would agree just on pharmacologic grounds alone. It's a long okay. time coming. Uh, we should have these on virtually all controlled substances of all kinds, opioids, benzodiazepines, stimulants, anabolic steroids, anything that's a controlled substance. There's, okay. there's data and there's evidence for these causing problems. And that's why they're controlled. It's not, they're not controlled because they're powerful in terms of effectiveness. That's what people think. It's one of my favorite, uh, <laughs> unfortunate, but favorite myths is that's not true. They're controlled because of their ability to do harm. Right. And the more severe restrictions, because they've shown the proclivity to have more harm. So there's this new warning. And the black box warning is, you know, it is about tolerance, dependence, addiction, potential abuse, but also withdrawal symptoms and the need to do appropriate and non-rapid tapering and to appropriately taper people, which is, again, it's another conversation, but to do these things and to make doctors aware of it. The good news is once something gets into a black box, there's a lot of evidence, and I've spent years studying this with antidepressants mm -hmm. and other classes of drugs, that once something gets put into a black box, doctors do listen. Okay. They read that, they do start to change their behavior, and we've studied that across, whether it's psychiatry, where we did this back in the day when we started talking about suicidal ideation risk with antidepressants. Right. And this is the early 90s, three or four years after Prozac was released, we started getting case reports of activation, akathisia, suicidal ideation, suicidal yep. behavior. And we started looking at it. And the FDA at first said, we're looking at it. We don't have enough evidence to change anything yet. But then they did it. They got enough evidence and over a three or four year period, then they put out a black box warning saying, warning, there's an increased risk of mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts or ideation for people consuming these medications, especially in adolescents and young adults. And we saw a dramatic reduction in doctors prescribing those drugs. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that's probably good in most cases. That's great. There could be yeah. cases where someone needs one and doesn't get it, but right. I think those are far outnumbered by people getting them and probably not needing them or getting them a lot longer than they should have gotten them. Um, I, there's yeah. a lot of evidence that most of the most of the use that's that's not uh, that's not labeled is probably in that direction. But you, you know, you you mentioned the schedule. Um, that's something I talked about. I did a video this last weekend about it, just so people would have a little more education on what the warning meant. But I know where um, benzodiazepines are currently classified at a schedule four um, of five. Of course, as it goes up, it gets you know up to the number one. Of course, it gets more um, severe and more controlled. Do you think that's appropriate still for benzodiazepines? Do you think it should be a higher, a better, a stronger number than that. And do you think there's any chance that might change? I think it, it, I don't think it would be inappropriate to move benzodiazepines, what, what's called up scheduling from schedule four, where they are to okay. three or two or whatever. Schedule okay. one is reserved for things that have no legitimate medical use. So no right. randomized double blind placebo controlled trials to establish efficacy. So right. there's only one drug up there like dronabinol, which is a cannabinoid does have FDA approval because they studied it for post-op nausea and vomiting and narrow angle glaucoma and a pharmaceutical company manufactures it. So they move that from schedule one to schedule two. Okay. But all other cannabis products are schedule one, not necessarily because of a state issue, you know, states and, and their decisions to do with it, but it federally, there's just no clinical trials giving gotcha. them an established medical use. So they can't move them based on the Controlled Substances Act in 1973. That's where they have to put that. 
Right. Benzodiazepines are in Schedule 4. You could make an argument that they should be Schedule 3. Um, materially, it doesn't change much in terms of what doctors can do if a drug is Schedule 3 or 4. Okay. It changes when they move to Schedule 2 from 3. And in Schedule 2, there's no refills allowed. There's more quantity restrictions. There's things like that that kick in at Schedule 2. And then Schedule 1, there's no legitimate medical use. You're not supposed to prescribe those things at all at the federal level. Okay. So there's a good argument that you could move yeah. benzos up to Schedule 3 based on the harms that we see. Okay. DEA makes that decision, which unfortunately is a different decision from FDA. They make their labeling decisions about the efficacy and safety of the product. DEA makes their decisions about the abuse, addiction, diversion, and overdose death potential of a product. Okay. So it's different criteria, and then they can schedule those independently of what FDA does. So DEA and FDA do not work hand in hand on those. <laughs> they can refer to each other's information, and they like to hear from each other, like, what do you think? But they make their own decisions about, on the DEA, what to put on what schedule. And the FDA says, are we going to FDA approve this or not? Or put a warning on it, or a different kind of warning. And regardless of what DEA says, the FDA can go ahead and put a black box warning on something, which they often do whether it's a controlled substance or not, just like they did with benzos, which are a controlled substance, and just like they did with antidepressants, which are not a controlled substance. Right, right. So it's a lot of com complicated decision-making at the federal level for how do we regulate these things? How do we try to slot them in terms of warnings and restrictions and make that appropriate? Because the goal, I think, is just like with any compound, try to give people that have legitimate medical need, if there is safety and efficacy established by clinical trials, give the doctor the ability to prescribe something and then appropriately regulate them in terms of risk and risk communication. So okay. patients and doctors should be made aware, fully aware of the risks of medications that they're prescribing and consuming. And that's the ongoing mission of the FDA is to, is to establish those things that the drug does work better than a placebo and it doesn't kill people in terms of safety. That's kind of what we mean by safety in clinical trials. Okay. But once it's released, how do we communicate the risks and benefits of a drug so that doctors are fully informed, pharmacists are fully informed, patients are fully informed, and can then make their own decisions about whether they want to take something based on that risk-benefit profile. Okay. And that's kind of how we try to do things in this world. And it now, you, you, you cued in, and you're really good at these transitions. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> you cued in about the communication part. Once this boxed warning is released, like the recent one on benzodiazepines, how is that communicated? Is it communicated? How are physicians, how's the medical established? How are people alerted to this? Of course, the press has picked it up for a few of us and that's how we got the information, but how is that communicated out to um, pharmacists, out to doctors, to, the, to that group of people? Yeah, and the FDA has fairly sophisticated communication plans to establish communications about risk. So they do communicate all of the black box warning information to all health professionals that could prescribe okay. or dispense. So any doctor is going to get a dear doctor letter saying, here's what we did. Right. Every pharmacist is going to get a letter saying, here's what we did. So be aware of these risks. There is new labeling and here's what the labeling says. And so they will call that out. They will reissue those, the labels for those medications now. Um, I believe they already did uh, on that day. They reissued the label. So the label now contains the black box warning. Okay. And any new medication that ships has the copies of the label with it. They reissued a medication guide for patients so that pharmacists in most states, 43 or 45 states, are obligated by state law to give out medication guides with the medications that they dispense. Okay, gotcha. And those medication guides will now be updated to have that information that says warning that will have, it will contain verbatim the things that are in the medication guide, which is the patient translated version of what is in the medical label. Cause sometimes okay. the medical label has quite a bit of jargon in it. And, and when, when, that does, into consumable when does this, when does this happen? Does this happen before, during, or after the announcement? At the time. So my, my time. recollection is, um, and I just checked a little bit before the podcast that there <laughs> is a new medication guide. So they've okay. translated this new information for a patient and they always give the patient a uh, much more, you know, it's translated into common English and like, Hey, what, what are we doing? Yeah. What are we warning about? Why are we warning you? What can you do about this? What should you know? What can you ask your doctor? You know, those kinds of questions that are very practical for a person to have. Okay. And then the doctor is, is considered the learned intermediary in this whole process. The one that has the obligation to notify the patient 
is the doctor to communicate with the patient about the risks. Okay. And so the doctor is called the learned intermediary. The, the doctor has the, the duty to know about the risks and benefits of what they prescribe and to communicate those risks to the patient to a sufficient level that a patient can make an informed decision. How would I go about getting a copy of that patient communication? I think you can probably, I'll, I'll look at it for you and forward okay. that to you, but it's a medication guide. You just Google FDA okay. benzodiazepine medication guide. Yeah, I might make that available. I'm sure people would want to see what that looks like and what the language is. Right. And it's usually, you know, it's very good. Then pharmacists have an obligation to do two things. Put a medication guide with the package. So you mm -hmm. see all that, all the paper that comes with your, your yeah. prescription fills. Unfortunately, it's kind of like birdcage lining material because there's so much of it, you know, like 30 pages of stuff and rarely do people read all 30 pages of stuff. But that's one of the obligations is to include all this material, the printed material, the med guide. And then the pharmacist has a duty to offer to counsel the patient. Okay. The patient does not have to accept that because you can't make a person be counseled about their medications. But you can say the pharmacist has a duty to warn you and to offer. So all, virtually all states, like here in Colorado as well, you have to offer and you go to a pharmacy and they'll say, do you want to talk to the pharmacist? That is the offer to counsel. Okay. And if I you got say you. yes, they'll call the pharmacist over. And if not, they'll jot down offered declined. So you had a, an offer to counsel. And those are the ways that we try to make sure patients are informed. There's a, the doctor is supposed to talk to you. The pharmacist is supposed to give you a piece of paper with the med guide and the offer to talk to you. Okay. Great. Three opportunities that the patients get that are, codified into medical and pharmacy practice. All Beyond right. that, it's a lot of media attention and you'll hear about it and you know, same kinds of things. But there's three things that happen in practice for drug risk to be supposed to be communicated to patients. It doesn't always okay. happen like it should, unfortunately. Right. You, you had hinted at earlier with this warning, one of the key things that I was surprised, I mean, I was surprised the warning came out. I don't know if in your industry you saw it coming was, or was it, does it, is it a surprise? No, I knew they were working on it because I subscribe okay. to a listserv at FDA of the things that they're looking at in terms of okay. risk. And it's, it's, for the, it's for sort of the adverse event nerds like me. We call ourselves pharmacoepidemiologists. And okay. so we're studying all kinds of potential adverse effects to see okay. if it really is a drug-related thing. And if it is, how frequent is it? How serious is it? Who's at risk for it? Should we be telling FDA about it? Should FDA be doing something about it? What should that be? You know, there's a whole process of what's called post-marketing surveillance and a whole community of scientists and clinicians and regulators that go to conferences about this stuff. And they follow certain drugs that they're looking at and what they're studying and evaluating right now. And there's a list of that on the FDA website of the drugs that are being looked at. And so okay. I subscribe to that thing. And I've been kind of watching what happens with benzos and stimulants and opioids because uh, those are my career. So I kind of have an ear to the ground with that. So it doesn't surprise me that they that they did this. And I knew it was coming. I didn't know how long it would take. It took them a while. But they don't move overnight. They don't like to change, <laughs> I think, practice patterns without having pretty good evidence that they should change things. And, and rightly so. I understand that. Right. Um, so there's an argument for that. But yeah. I always argue, you know, you got you to gotta start warning people sooner about what right. you do know. And I think that's been better over the last five or eight years that, okay. hey, we're looking at this and we're declaring that this could be an issue but, and we're looking at it. Whereas before they would be silent until they said yes or no at the end. Right and now, at least they're telling people, hey, we're looking at this and that's kind of an advanced warning. Yeah. Not always gonna pan out that they find something, but you know, usually when it gets to the point of them taking a serious look, usually there's a reason that they're taking a serious look. Rarely does it happen okay. that they take a serious look for no reason or it was just right. on a random or it was kind of a freak occurrence. That <laughs> just doesn't happen much, just not much. And the other thing I was gonna mention on that was one of the keys, and you said this earlier, was that they actually identified recommendations for tapering. And I thought that surprised me a little bit and it was a nice surprise because they talked about a slow taper being the preferred choice for withdrawal. and. It's nice to see also that documented along with this warning. Exactly. I think it was very important. And the, really the principles underneath what's in the black box warning are pretty good. You know, they hit the major points about right. the things that you'd really want to have covered. Um, you know, of course we'd all, we'd all, we would all like to have more detail and have things mm -hmm. be more explicit and all of that, but they're balancing when they put something in a black box, they're trying to make sure that every single word of that is something a doctor is going to be able to know that, that, that that's there. Okay. So they're not, if they take the black box and make it as long as the label, then it's not a black box anymore. 
it's just the whole label. So they're, you know, they're trying to strike a balance for how do we summarize all of these key things in important called out terms. And when you put it in the black box, doctors are really sort of, hey, you're on notice. You're supposed okay. to know these things. You're supposed to understand those things. And if you're not comfortable with it, don't prescribe that if you don't know what you're doing with those things. And usually that's what happens with black box warnings. They do impact behavior the most. The only way to do anything more is to pull the drug from the market. Okay. Well, that's good news. Um, let's go back up a little bit too. Since your background, you have a lot of background, of course, on the opioid crisis. Let's talk about a comparison there. One of the key things, and I know you've heard this many times, but I, I'm interested to get your take on it, is of course the addiction versus dependence terminology when it comes to benzodiazepines. Um, I know most of us in the community, we often like to stress that, as Dr. Wright has said many times, it's often dependence and rarely addiction. Would you agree with that statement? Um, and I just like to know what the difference is. If it is more dependence than addiction, how do you approach it differently than as with the opioid crisis? Right. No, that's a very good question. And addiction you know, is a complex thing. There's first, there is physiologic dependence uh, and tolerance to medication, which various medications you can develop a tolerance for or a physical dependence for. Okay. And that could be, you know, any number of things, whether it's an opioid or benzodiazepine or insulin, you can be physiologically dependent on insulin. And if you don't get it, you're not going to do very well. Uh, and your body will, you will notice right away right. if you're not getting your, if you're not getting your insulin and you okay. will know within minutes to hours. And so it'll be pretty pronounced by the time you get very yeah. far out um, that you need your insulin and you're, you're, you're dependent upon the insulin. So dependence in and of itself just means somebody requires to have this medication on board to have a, an equilibrium sort of effect of their, you know, with their body. So that their okay. body is operating in relative equipoise. Um, that's always a relative term, but it's relatively, your body is stable. You're not actively acutely withdrawing or having a, an acute problem. Okay. Like this minute. So there's dependence and that's something. And, and benzodiazepines do lead to dependence right. and that's physiologic. But addiction is something that requires dependence as a necessary condition but dependence is, is a necessary but insufficient condition for addiction. So you must be dependent to be addicted. Okay. But, but if just because you are dependent does not mean you will ever become addicted. You may gotcha. or may not. And some substances, you never really progress that much. Addiction is a behavioral phenomenon mm -hmm. on top of dependence where people are having difficulty in terms of controlling cravings, continuing using something despite adverse consequences, and having a lot of problems, compulsive behaviors, that they must go seek this. And they do things like they'll steal or lie or cheat, or they'll, they'll do whatever they can to get this medication. And usually it involves some sort of deceitful behavior. Okay. And then some sort of compulsive behavior as well. Uh, and then there's a, a noted phenomenon of craving as well that goes beyond just physiologic withdrawal. It's different from craving. Um, withdrawal effects are different. Craving's a different phenomenon. Uh, right. is usually reported with things like nicotine, alcohol, um, opioids, mm -hmm. things like that uh, have much more craving associated with them. Benzodiazepines do not have a lot of craving right. associated with that particular compound. So they're just different, you know, and, and a few people, I would think it's probably true. Far more often than not, people would be dependent on a, on, on, on a benzodiazepine and not addicted. Okay. Not that I've never heard of it reported. I've heard right. of it yeah. being reported. But I've, heard I've actually heard yeah. an awful lot of things that people have said they're addicted and having a strange right. behavioral phenomenon about virtually any kind of behavior. You know, I would claim my son's pretty well addicted to fly fishing, if you ask me. <laughs> he, would, he would do that despite any any negative consequences I could give right. him not to go. Right. But I'm not trying to be facetious. But it really is a no. it's a it's a complex thing that there's the physiology that is really underlying the vast majority of what we see with benzodiazepines. Yeah. Then there's this behavioral phenomenon that gets added on for certain things. Mostly, it's like with uh, you know alcohol or opioids, where you see this craving, continued use, compul cravings, compulsion, continued use despite adverse consequences. Sort okay. of the three C's. Yeah, I probably I probably I work with maybe a few people that have because um, I communicate with a lot of listeners on a regular basis, and maybe about two or three who have stated an addiction. But of course, the vast majority of the 300 or so that I've been working with are mostly dependent only. Right. Um, and I would think that's probably about right. And I don't, okay. I'm not aware of any really good large scale studies of that phenomenon because I don't think people are aware enough. I think the thing is, we're just, again, this horse is back just barely out of the starting gate 
on right. raising awareness of this thing. We've been studying opioids for 35 years now when we started to realize there was a problem. I was having these conversations with that woman I talked about, this nurse named Jody. Jody and I were having these conversations in 1986. Oh, I want to thank Dr. Valak for being on the show. Wow, such a such a great compendium of information from him. And the second half of this interview is even better. Uh, we cover some great topics. I've listed some of them in the description of both of the of the different podcasts of what's on each one, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, but I just want to thank you, thank him for allowing us to record him and for giving us his time. He was very, very generous in that. And for all he's done, he's done so much to help people with opioids, with benzos, with all different types of prescription drugs that are causing problems. And I'm really grateful for what he's, what he's done and accomplished. So, so thank you. And please, um, tune into episode 70 for the second part of this. It'll be released either in conjunction with this, but being behind a little bit today, it might be tomorrow it comes out, but it will come out shortly, I promise. And now on to our brief disclaimer, and then we will jump into our moment of peace. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering on any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today's meditation is going to be a listening meditation. I love this one, and I come back to it now and again. There's no mantra here. Nothing really to focus on like that. Instead, it's just to pay attention to the sounds around you in your environment. Whether they be a five-lane highway outside your window or a mountain stream next to the hiking trail. It doesn't really matter. Just listen to the sounds. Notice them. And as they pass, let them pass. And then notice the next one. No judgment. These sounds aren't good. They're not bad. In fact, you don't even need to label them or identify them. Just notice the sound. Notice their texture. And then notice the next one. If your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to the sound around you. Let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in, hold it for a second, and let it out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally, and listen to the sounds around you. 
If your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to those sounds. Let's do this for one minute. Our next episode is episode 70, and it was released in conjunction with this one, or the day after. It is part two of our conversation with Dr. Val. Please, let us know how we did. I really want to hear from you. Keep calm. Taper slowly. And take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.